This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Sharpening your character's hook. Hitmen. Tropes versus cliches. And the menace of the gene. Hey, Ken, guess what project touted here on the podcast is now crowdfunding on Indiegogo? I don't have to guess. I can see here in the script that it's my pals at Phoenix. As in Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. When typing it into your search engine of choice, remember that all right-thinking persons and Swedes spell it F-E-N-I-X. Uh, And, of course, you don't mean to make a distinction between those two things, but you can tell that it addresses the right-thinking demographic because among its contributors is elliptonic raconteur Kenneth Height. Hop aboard the Indiegogo campaign for a Best of Phoenix anthology in English. Stretch goals expand its ambition to multiple volumes. Among its Heightian treasures, Dacian werewolves. Golden vampires. And the frost-caked western once upon a time in the north. Plus, from a roster of other contributors, singing spellcasters, Drowned Oz, and the card game Phoenix Fighters. Plus the cartoon exploits of Burger Barbarian. On Indiegogo until April 3rd, 2014. The crinkling of chip bags of indeterminate sort, the rustling of pizza boxes, the sound of Frampton Comes Alive being sternly rejected in favor of a better ringtone tell us that we're in the gaming hut. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Robin, here in the gaming hut, in its uh, shag-carpeted and uh, siding-paneled glory, what do you have to draw us in? Well, I think perhaps uh, we might be moving ahead in time in our uh, gaming hut to a time when players are asked to come up with hooks that they can supply the GM that will help the GM propel them into the storyline. So this is a rule that you find in a lot of places. I'm thinking about Feng Shui at the moment because I'm revising it. In that game, you are asked to supply a melodramatic hook that gives your character a reason to do things and also creates the idea that your action adventure occurs within the context of extreme melodrama that we know from classic Hong Kong cinema. In Some of the gumshoe games, there are drives, and these are basically sort of fallback positions that once you stop acting like a character in the appropriate genre, they remind you to act like such a character. And so I thought what we do this week is kind of uh, workshop what you do to make sure that the thing that you're supplying to the GM is interesting and fun and active, because you can say something that defines your character, but it's often a little tougher, I think, for people to then think through the steps of how it is that they actually do something active from that, right? So, for example, you can say, well, my character was raised in a monastery, but that doesn't get you anywhere particularly. Or, you know, my character uh, has a hot temper and hates it when people point out that he has one red eye and one green eye. Well, both of those things are things about your character, things that define them, but they don't quite do the role of a hook that drives you into the story and gives the GM a ball to play with, ideas that they can take and run with. The GM can have you 
have NPCs come up to you and insult your character because he has mismatched eyes, and you can have that scene where you get angry at them, but then that's all the juice that you've put in that lemon, so to speak. So I'm going to invite you as GM. I'm the player in this instance, and my hook that I've come to the table with is not quite developed yet and isn't active. So it's, I was brought up in a monastery. So as GM, how are you going to work with me to adjust that, to make that into something more active that gives you something you can play with? Well, there's a couple of different ways that you can go. Obviously, the key is to make the monastery important, because what you don't want to do is push back and say, you weren't brought up in a monastery, that's boring. Because they right. thought about it, they want to be brought up in a monastery. So you have to say, when you were in the monastery, you heard the elder monks, and they would never tell you anything, because you were just a novice, but you heard them talk about the scrolls of Azlarak. And you never knew what it meant, but you've always been kind of curious about that, and so that twigs the player to know, all right, there's going to be something, my monastery is guarding some kind of wisdom or treasure, and I'm going to be somehow involved in the story on that level. Or, of course, there's the good old-fashioned, the guy says, I was brought up a monastery, and you say, did you ever have any contacts outside, in the outside world? And they say, no, I've been raised by the monks my whole life, I learned all of my magic and martial arts from those kindly folk. And you say, so what did you do when the Mongols came and burned down your monastery? Right, and both of these are instances where the GM is sort of taking your idea and pulling it over the finish line and completing it for you and making it more interesting for you. Right. Another way that you can do it as, uh, and we're going to start with how to do it as a GM, and then the, the idea here is to sort of train you as a player to not have to go through this process. Because if you only show up thinking, my character grew up in a monastery, and all of a sudden now the gym has killed off everybody in your monastery, uh, maybe that's not the way that you wanted to go. But because you didn't have a complete idea when you showed up, and because the GM's on the spot and has to think of something right away, all of a sudden you're now in a position of having to either negate what the GM is throwing at you or not. So another way that the GM could deal with this is sort of a more Socratic method. So Ken, why don't you as player hit me with a uh, an kind of a flat inactive hook for your character. Okay. Uh, my character uh, learned to shoot his longbow uh, hunting in the forests outside his uh, village as a boy and grew up uh, very familiar with the longbow and is, has won local archery competitions. And what sort of trouble did that get you into? Well, the other, uh, the other kids were jealous of me because of my natural archery skill, especially the son of the local lord who thought that because he was uh, the son of the local lord, he should win all the archery contests. And so there was a rivalry there. And so uh, does this, uh, how, did that, how did that play out? What, uh, do you still have this rivalry with this uh, son of the local lord? Well, I, had, I, I, I assume I had to leave my village to go adventuring. So I suspect that um, uh, he considers that he won by chasing me out. So do you consider this absolutely resolved? Do you think there's some chance that he, surely there's some reason why someone still bears you a grudge? Yeah, um, I stole his girl at the archery contest because uh, the prize was a kiss from uh, the Queen of the Fair, and uh, I got it and he didn't, and that led to other things, and I suspect that he uh, he has always um, uh, resented me for getting in there first, although I haven't seen that girl since I left the village, and I sure hope that he hasn't done anything untoward using his power. Uh, do you ever think about the girl? Do you ever think of... Uh possibly going back and finding out what happened? You never forget your first queen of the fair. So then, uh, are you possibly going out into the world with your longbow to gain 
enough uh, skill and power to uh, go back and uh, rectify that situation? Very possibly indeed, unless this Scrolls of Azlarak thing really pays out. <laughs> right. So, uh, and there at the end is, is an example where the player is, is also sort of helping to further things by presumably creating a connection to the uh, monk character. So you right. see how the process there is to get the character to think more in terms of turning whatever that hook was into some sort of conflict and some sort of relationship with other characters. Often players are afraid to or reluctant to create relationships to other characters precisely because they are nervous about having the storyline have power over them because you've now, in this instance, created the, an enemy for yourself and a love object character or a, a love interest character, I should say, who uh, you then will want to protect and is in some sort of danger. And you've now created a sense of urgency that implies that now the G as GM, I know I want to get you back to your village somehow uh, as quickly as possible in order to start activating this hook. That it's not interesting enough for you to just have that hanging out there unresolved and never touched. But then as you go about your adventures, I know as a GM that pretty soon you're going to run into somebody who you also know from your village who says, yes, in fact, the queen of the fair uh, ha has indeed been locked in the dungeon because she won't marry the son of the local lord. And uh, I think, in fact, that she's been uh, 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 pining for you and hoping that you will come back. And so that activates that hook and then makes you go and do something. So uh, as a player, you can take your hook and sort of turn it around and make it into something where you're basically setting up a plot line. And that's what a hook is if you're willing to get over your reluctance to have the narrative have power over you. Because, of course, if you don't do it, the GM will, and uh, you may do it in a way that you don't find uh, quite as interesting or empowering. Yeah, I like the Socratic method. I mean, even with your uh, mismatched eyes thing, I think it would be, uh, it, it's it's fun to then sort of come back and they say, okay, my character has mismatched eyes, and you say, all right, what's the worst uh, rumor you ever heard uh, growing up about people with mismatched eyes? Did you hear the thing about demonic possession, or did you hear something worse? And then the character can sort of provide a sort of a guideline with where they thought they were going with that. And then maybe you could say, and what's the best thing that you heard about people with mismatched eyes? Did you hear anything besides that the Counts of Rugen historically have mismatched eyes that match yours, even though you, of course, are of low birth and the thought that you're an aristocrat is ludicrous in the extreme? Right. And uh, just as, you know, the old uh, joke with the fortune cookie is you can make a fortune cookie fortune funnier by adding the words in bed to it. You can make an inactive hook interesting by then asking, and how did that get you into trouble? Um, mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, let's uh, do one more. Uh, this is a space game, and I am a, uh, I describe myself, my hook is, I am a, uh, the son of a uh, family of traders who promised myself that I would never go to space. Okay, so you have promised yourself you'll, you'll never go to space, and I'm the GM. Since we know it's a space game, the the quick way to say that is, so what do you think of that uh, youthful promise now hanging in orbit around Altair 9? And uh, I'm extremely embittered, and I'm uh, 
uh, anxious to get back home as soon as I can. So here's an example of a player sort of testing the limits of your ability with an, a goal that negates what it is that you're doing. And you will uh, mm -hmm. run into this surprisingly often where people will create characters whose adventurous hook is they don't want to be adventuring. And it's one thing to have a sort of a reluctant hero who overcomes their reluctance. Uh, so if you, as the GM, rather than asking, how do you feel, what the character feels is still sort of static. It's a reaction. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to make it more active. So uh, why did you break that vow is about taking that thing and turning it into an action. And so uh, one of those questions uh, can lead the character to, oh, well, I'm, I'm a sulky uh, kind of mopey Gus in the, in the cast. Um, and that's kind of a drag, whereas the other one is, well, you had to finally go to space because you discovered that the uh, half-sister that you thought was lost in the asteroid field is still alive. And so that gives you not just a, a response, a reaction, but an action that you would imply. And so how did that get you into trouble or why did that make you act is the question that turns a flat character concept into a hook that propels you forward into the narrative. Any thoughts before we move on, Ken? I, I would say another question that you can ask is um, who or what is preventing you from getting that thing that you want? So if you still want to go back to Earth, you, you don't like it in space, um, you absolutely you can ask, why did you overcome that vow in the first place? Uh, but you can also say, and who or what is preventing you from going back to Earth? What's the obstacle that you need to point your character toward? And so you can say, well, I've still got five years left on my contract with the asteroid mining company, and they won't let me go back to Earth until I've, you know, mined out X amount of thorium. Or you can say, well, I can't stop until I've found my sister. Or you say, well, I would go, but the admiral in charge of the Earth defense thinks that I'm a traitor because I, I stole some plans on my way out. Uh, or was framed for stealing plans on my way out, or whatever it happens to be. And that gives the GM something to either hold out as a carrot to draw the story forward, or actually to build into the full arc of the campaign. So you might not have thought, well, oh, okay, I didn't know that there was an Earth defense, but yeah, I guess it makes sense, and maybe the Admiral has got a lot of traitors going on, so this can have a sort of a, a treason-y spy element underneath the space adventure element. Right, and to, to generalize that question, uh, what you ask yourself there is, if you have a hook that seems kind of inactive, is what do I have to do to return to my inactive goal, right? What mm -hmm. do I get to do before I retire? So, you you know, in a way, it's sort of like the one last score, and of course, the one last score never happens until the... Yeah climax of the campaign. Right. So the one last score is always the uh, the opening of the movie, and it's the climax of the campaign. Yeah. Um, well, I think that uh, handles uh, that issue, and we have our uh, motivations, and our motivations are to move on to the next segment. Once Upon a Time is a storytelling card game. 
You know this because it's been a spot sponsor on the show for the past four weeks. But did you know that there are a bunch of expansions available for Once Upon a Time? Before now, there were three expansions, Seafaring Tales, Enchanting Tales, and Create Your Own Storytelling Cards expansion. Seafaring Tales lets you weave tales of pirates, sailing ships, stowaways, and mermaids. And scurvy? Well, there is no vitamin C card in the set. Enchanting Tales adds magical princess stories, brooms, jealousy, woodsmen, godmothers. And create your own cards. It seems pretty self-explanatory. At this point, the fearless listener is asking, hey, what's this before now business? Well heard, fearless listener. Now there's a brand new fourth expansion for Once Upon a Time, Nightly Tales. Having rushed out to grab your copy of Nightly Tales, you'll tell a story from cards like Courtly Love, and a Herald, and the Reckless Aspect. And Battlefields and Betrayals, although that's Courtly Love, not Courtney Love, so obviously there's some crossover. And ending <laughs> cards like Because of Her Skill with a Lance, Women Were Allowed to Become Knights from Then On. Nightly indeed. Shall we recap? Have at it, good sir. There are three, nay, four expansions available right now for Once Upon a Time, 3rd Edition. And Nightly Tales is brand new. And it adds valorous deeds, bold characters, and all manner of Arthurian elements to your Once Upon a Time game. 38 new story cards and 17 new ending cards, all told. For more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin2. atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin2. For fearless listeners who like knights, quests, and telling stories, and who have an excellent taste in card games. That next segment is a new segment here on Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, and that is Crime Blotter. <laughs> Crimes <laughs> and criminals uh, feature uh, quite a lot in a lot of the different genres that we deal with. You can you don't have that many straight police procedurals in role-playing games. Uh, Mutant City Blues is an exception to that. But very often in horror games, uh, superhero games, even uh, space games where you're running into futuristic uh, criminals... Uh, also in the uh, spy genre overlap between tradecraft and criminality. But there are uh, a lot of sort of standard genre elements that come from the world of crime. And so I thought when something reaches our police scanner that we would uh, talk about it here on the show. And uh, Ken, I know that uh, you are surpassed in your interest for true crime only by your uh, wife. Mm -hmm. So uh, this week I thought we would talk about Hitman. Uh, recently, the uh, criminology department of the uh, Birmingham City University and the person of a criminologist named David Wilson released a report profiling Hitman. And Hitman, of course, are pretty central to uh, a lot of action genres. But in the world of criminology, they aren't studied nearly as much as serial killers who uh, kill recreationally and have all of these uh, fascinating uh, psychoses and uh, usually manage to get themselves caught or spree or mass killers who uh, usually manage to get themselves uh, suicided by police and are making usually a statement of personal slash political anger. But we don't tend to know a lot about hitmen. They haven't been studied in the same way. Uh, and for one reason is there are a lot of them who uh, get away with it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, it's one of those uh, things like studying forgers. You can only study the ones who get caught, by definition. And uh, there is a... Uh, one certainly hopes that there are not people wandering around committing murder without getting caught, but I think just a simple examination of you know, Pareto curves in every other trade and the fact that, say, 
Washington, D.C. has, I think, a closure rate for homicides, something north of 10%. New Orleans used to be that bad. I don't know if it's still that bad after Katrina. Chicago is, uh, it used to be around 70 or 80%. I think it's down around 50 or 60%. So a lot of those homicides that go unsolved are probably simple gang killings or uh, a standard sort of a... Um, uh, altercation between armed youths that gets out of hand, but I think that you have to sort of allow for the possibility that certainly in the world of organized crime, there are people whose job it is, literally, to go around and kill people that the boss once killed, as well as sort of uh, a freelance type uh, killer who might be either a one-off guy that you met uh, through uh, some other connection and you sort of sense that they're the, the, one of the 5% of people who don't mind killing people, or you um, uh, hope that they're not an undercover cop because you met them on Craigslist, uh, which I suspect is more common than not. And then um, you uh, you wind up engaging in a, in a one-off, uh, one-hit uh, killing, and I suspect a lot of the people in this study will turn out to be those kinds of amateurs. It, it looks like the numbers sort of bear me out uh, by the by the numbers in this study. The, um, the, the novices up to what they call the masters, the people who are... Um, uh, uh, actually hired by organized crime to kill well-protected other crime bosses. Right. So the study breaks down in its sort of effort to start profiling uh, serial killers, the four kinds of serial killers. And I thought we might sort of go through the list of them and look at different ways that they could fit into your game or your uh, piece of genre fiction. So the first one they give is, uh, as you suggest, the novice. And the novice is, uh, as the term suggests, someone who is uh, somehow enmeshed in crime already, but uh, this is their first attempt at a hit. And uh, because a lack of practice makes him perfect, these are the most likely, of course, to uh, get caught or to fail to do the job, sometimes because they uh, have qualms and are they turn up not to be in the 5% of people who can easily kill, or they uh, just don't have the skills necessary to kill the other person. So what sort of kind of plot lines does that suggest? Because from the concept, it seems that a failed incompetent hitman is not terribly threatening as an antagonist. I think the failed in, in, uh, hitman is a great GM signal that someone is trying to kill the players. And in a sort of a larger supernatural world, it might be just someone who heard that there was a, you know, a reward of, you know, cure for cancer for anyone who can kill these meddling uh, investigators. And they're the first guy who got the, the message and they show up and they're terrible at it. But that triggers the uh, information needed for the players to know, OK, we are but there's a there's a supernatural contract out on us. We need to be careful. We need to start finding out what's going on that that. um uh Two men burst into the room with a gun, as uh, Raymond Chandler said, gets the story moving. One guy bursting into your room without thinking about it and a gun is, I think, another really good way to get a story going, because now you have a great interpersonal scene with this failed hitman. You can trace them back a little bit. You have a more profitable batch of information than a more uh, unrealistic example of the sniper who's sighted his... Um, uh, his uh, Dragonov in on you and still misses with enough information for you to dodge away. Uh, that seems less likely. So I think that a a, a, bat, a novice hitman is maybe a better way to to start off a story of of cat and mouse if the players are the mice. Right, and the players don't necessarily have to be the mice. Right, they can be uh, hired or brought in when their patron 
or someone else hiring them on behalf of the uh, person who was killed. You can have some, or not killed, you can have other some other person be the target of this botched hit. And so you now know, A, there's somebody trying to kill this person, and they have a powerful incentive to hire you to stop any future attacks. And also then you've got sort of a double-pronged thing going on where you have to uh, protect the person who was possibly, you know, just shot in the arm or the... Uh, the gunfire went into their Mercedes instead of them, There's you have a protection aspect as well as an investigation aspect, and that can give you sort of a double-pronged thing that if you like doing this, you can sort of split up the group uh, and divide them between the two different tasks and cut back and forth between those two things. Yeah, the um, other thing, of course, can be that the player characters are brought in because a novice hitman has messed up the, the hit, and they are also supposed to hit the guy, and now it's like, this explains why their target is on his guard and can't just be taken out with a sniper shot from across the street. Um, the next category in the list is the dilettante, and this is the person who's also uh, new to the world of assassination for hire, but this is their introduction to the realm of criminality. It's often someone who is uh, down on their luck, needs the dough, and although not themselves a criminal, is somehow close enough to the criminal world that someone feels ready to approach them about uh, asking them to accept a big chunk of money in order to uh, pull off a hit. And that sort of creates all sorts of interesting questions that can get your story going, which is, you know, why is the person ordering the hit going to this person? Why does this person need to execute a, a hit like that? And you can find genre examples like, uh, you know, Strangers on a Train is sort of the classic one where the one guy uh, tries to recruit somebody else as a dilettante murderer by offering to perform a dilettante murder of someone in their lives. And there's all sorts of ways that you can sort of play with that classic premise that's been reused for years and years after the original Hitchcock film. Yeah, another thing that um, you can use with the, uh, with the dilettantes is because they are people who really don't have a connection to the criminal world, you start looking at uh, what their motivation is. And it might be the case previously that they have, you know, some sort of uh, problem that can only be solved by the, uh, by, by, by the supernatural. And that's how they got drawn into a supernatural world of, of criminality and hitting. Or it could be a situation where the bad guys have got, you know, mind control rays or mind control chips. And so people who seemingly wouldn't ever go in for hitting, if they start killing folks, that may point up a larger conspiracy of turning people into killers, either by, uh, technological means or psionics or some kind of uh, magic where you just sort of, you know, even if they took $7,000 or whatever it is to kill somebody, you you look at that amount of money and you think that's a relatively small amount of money for killing somebody. Surely there was something going on. And now you know that there's a super persuasive demon or a CIA mind control team that's out there working uh, to try and uh, knock out everyone who's talked to this one terrorist or something like that. Right, and that again suggests your inverted structure from before, where it starts with the hit is either botched by or completed by the the dilettante. I think in this case it's a little more interesting if the murder is actually committed, but the dilettante is shot down at the scene, and so you now have someone who committed this murder who has no connection to the world of crime. You can, uh, and then you have to sort of investigate their past and their story and learn about them in order to find whatever connection it was that led to the uh, person being hit. And now in that setup, it's more interesting if you 
also don't have an immediately apparent motive for the assassination, right? It becomes less interesting if, well, this guy's a noted Yakuza boss, and logically speaking, <laughs> the rival Yakuza gang had him hit, because uh, then you can skip the whole story of the hitman and instead just go and look at who his em- enemies were. Or you can do sort of the inversion of that, the classic Agatha Christie thing, where, uh, you know, 12 different people had a motivation to kill the person, and by process of elimination, you have to figure out which one had a connection to the hitter and then somehow prove it. Yeah, the um, other possibility is that you have a motive that is clear to the police, and it, you know, seems like it's sort of tied it up in any bow, this relatively small payout, or the fact that the guy was a, a mob boss, but you still want to know, all right, if he's a mob boss, why is a dentist killing him for less money than he would make by doing a root canal? And you, the investigators, now have a reason to sort of dig and investigate, and the cops have a reason to shut you down, which is, of course, always the thing that you really want in any in any role-playing game, the reason that these relatively, you know, in theory, outside uh, heroes, or possibly cops who just won't take uh, being uh, having the case closed uh, f- uh, for granted, um, but that the outsiders can't just call on people whose job it is to solve murders and who, in some place, some jurisdictions, say London, do a really, really good job of it. And you know, you if you're in you know London and a mysterious hit happens, in theory, you can just bring your evidence to Scotland Yard. But if Scotland Yard is said, no, we're pretty sure the dentist was paid to do it, and the guy was a yakuza boss, so there's no questions to answer, and you're like, I think there's still questions to answer because he had the tattoo of the hashishin and you're like okay that makes no sense get out of here <laughs> and now you have a story that you have to go figure out who is using you know uh, the, the mind control powers of the old man of the mountain to get dentists to kill yakuza uh the next category on the list is the journeyman as we work our way up the murderous competence ladder and uh this is the uh hitman who has a uh wide criminal background including uh perhaps uh, a successful assassination or two under their belt. And uh, so I guess this would be your... <laughs> this is the player characters. This is the player characters. <laughs> you know, this would be your mafia soldier. Uh, and so when this guy does the hit, uh, the obstacle probably isn't, well, who did this and why? But uh, how do you then crack the organization? You know, you, you sort of know at this point probably who done it. You know, it was done on behalf of the uh, mob organization that this guy's affiliated with. And then the obstacle of the scenario or the story then becomes finding the evidence to prove the case. That assumes, of course, that you've got some sort of legal uh, responsibility or authority. The other obstacle could just be your members of the rival gang. And without worrying about uh, proving it, you have to execute a war of attrition against the other gang. Yeah, the sort of notion that the the journeymen are the mafia soldiers, that obviously bears out pretty much historically accurately that nine times out of ten, if Al Capone wanted someone uh, hit, he had guys to do that. And if he had a really hard target, that's when he would have to call on Murder Incorporated or bring uh, someone in from Detroit to do it. But most of the time he had, you know, Jack McGurn, who could, you know, pretty much kill most people if he wanted to. And, uh, so the, the the notion that you've got a, a journeyman gang on the case, that is, I think, sort of, you know, it, it's like your default. It's, it, you know, you're involved in this criminal world. You assume that there are groups of criminals roughly of the same power level as the player characters who are out there working against you. And your job is to basically forensically profile 
where they are, where they're going, what their activities are, while yourselves, most likely, uh, remaining one step ahead of the law. I think the fun thing is if these journeymen, since they match the investigators so closely in power level, the GM can play with that and have them either be sort of dark reflections of the player characters, so there's a, a sniper for your sniper, there's a computer guy for your computer guy, whatever, or the journeyman's crimes can match the MO of your investigator group's crimes, which one hopes are more arson and destruction of federal property than they are murder, but still, one assumes that there's going to be the occasional inconvenient body in the rubble as you're hunting down, uh, you know, Cthulhu's or whatever it happens to be. So I think the notion that the player characters start taking heat officially or unofficially for the actions of their rough equivalents is another interesting thing to do with journeymen, so that now you have a real motivation to grab them so that you can then pin all of your crimes on them and maybe get off scot-free for a bit. And a fun twist on that is to set up a mystery where the MO perfectly matches that of a known journeyman, but in fact, it's a known personalized killer who is masking their murder by uh, making it look as if a journeyman hitman did it. And now we get to the final item on the list, and this is the one that pop culture uses a lot, which is the uh, master killer. And this is the the chow yun fat, as it were, or, uh, you know, the I'm blanking on other examples. Uh, famous hitmen from cinema, Ken? Uh, well, uh, Leon in The Professional, right? right? Obviously, he's, you know, as uh, one of the classics. There's a couple of movies called Assassins. Uh, the Jackal, and the, in both days of The Jackal, is uh, a famous hitman with a strong sort of political and terrorist uh, quality to him, but he's basically an assassin. I think those are th- those are all good ones. Or um, characters like the uh, the bad guy in the um, in the film, uh, I think it's called The Shooter, that was based on the Stephen Hunter novel. But there's uh, a number any any of your basic sniper movies. There's always the bad guy sniper who is also an assassin and goes around assassinating uh, the killers in uh, Born trilogy. Obviously, the Treadstone. Uh, guys are are wet work specialists. They're assassins. Right. Uh, one thing that you could do for a one shot game, if you're uh, have a group of people who are willing to sign on ahead of time, knowing that they're in a game of attrition, <laughs> is you are all hunting down a, a master assassin as he hunts you, and you know that uh, somebody's going to buy it at the uh, two hour mark, and at the two hour thirty minute mark, and at the three hour mark, and that the uh, final thing is going to be a one-on-one showdown, and the thing that's up for grabs as you play is, are you the guy who gets knocked out at the two-hour mark, or are you the final assassin who makes it through to uh, confront the uh, killer at the end? And so that can be sort of a way of... Because the difficult thing about playing, with a, especially with the pop culture version of the master assassin, is that he's an omni-competent villain who, if you confront him, you can easily overcome him so that uh, the cat and mouse game is a little difficult to set up without either chumping your heroes or uh, making the villain too easy to overcome. Yeah, I think that it's an interesting notion that you're playing all the guys who back up Gary Oldman in The Professional. And if you have a group of players that are that are into that, you can certainly say, you know, this is what we're going to do tonight. We're going to, you guys are going to go try and capture Leon from the professional. Good luck with that. And that sort of signals to them that the, the GM will be using a lot of dramatic editing as well. It's like, oh, and it turns out that's where the bomb was. Kaboom. Everyone roll, you know, dodge or whatever. And that I think is, it's sort of a specialized case, but I think that you can use 
a, a Leon or a or a Treadstone uh, super soldier as a um, uh, an asset, as they call them. Um, you you can use those guys as sort of um, level boss villains, right? The big bad is your Moriarty or Nier Lothotep or someone or Dracula or someone who's sort of way in the background pulling strings, but they have this super competent guy who you have to take out or co-opt somehow before you can get to the next level. And I think this is the point at which it maybe is a good idea to send a salutary bullet through the head of somebody. And ideally, the player characters have made enough friends that you can shoot one of those first instead of a player character. But, you know, um, again, you you need a special group because you don't want players to all sort of say, well, we're enough of that. We're going to hunker up in the bunker until Nier Othotep wins and then come out and make the best deal we can with him. Um, because they don't want to get shot by a sniper. But I think that there's there's a number of interesting possibilities to have that sort of cat and mouse where there's a, a sort of a time clock on it, but it's not a one-shot. That this is really a place where the GM is signaling, this is where the campaign gets real, and maybe you might want to start having some backup characters. I think it works better in a game like Call of Cthulhu or Trail of Cthulhu where there's an assumption that characters are fragile and uh, can be taken out by the environment. And I think it's an interesting choice in Call of Cthulhu to have the environment be a trained NKVD sniper instead of a ghoul, but it's an interesting, it, it should be the same sort of feel if the GM is good at it. And where we often see the, the master assassin in role-playing is that's your PC. He's now uh, reformed or had a change of heart or decided to start killing the bad guys instead of the uh, uh, people that he's paid to kill by his former organization. And of course there's the, you know, you've been betrayed, you were a loyal, upstanding, honorable hitman until your uh, boss betrayed you and now you're on the run right. from him and you're trying to uh, kill off all of his guys before uh, they get you. And of course, in a lot of the examples that you gave, there about half of them are the antagonists and about half of them are actually the uh, protagonists who follow that very classic formula of the uh, hitman who's a hitman at the beginning but is a uh, redeemed or semi-redeemed hero by the end. Mm-hmm. He, he gets to die in, in the arms of the innocent woman he saved from the bad guys or whatever it is. Right. And uh, the other thing that is uh, dying is uh, this segment, which is uh, romantically expiring, declaring its love for us and urging us to go on, to go on to another segment. Shutter of Selectric Keys tells us that once more we have uh, pulled down our fedoras, uncorked our bourbon, and be learning to how to write good. We are here in uh, the Good Writing Hut uh, to ask the question, as uh, perhaps uh, we have foreshadowed, of the trope. And at what point is a trope a tired cliche? And at what point is the trope um, uh, something that you can you can play with for actual narrative juice? And Robin, where where do those lines fall in your experience as writer and as editor? Well, it's something I was recently struggling with for a story idea that I came up with. I'm not going to go into the details of that because I still might actually write this, and I think I have cracked the problem, but I, having gone through that process, gave me the idea to talk about this on the show, and that is uh, it's 
one of those lines, like uh, in the famous judicial phrase, like pornography, you know it when you see it. And it's very difficult, I think, sometimes to tell uh, whether you are just reusing a tired idea and whether you are finding a new, fresh way of expressing a tired idea. And in a way, what the difficulty is that is that the genre audience both desires the familiar and tells you that they disdain the familiar. That if you use a familiar element and the uh, members of the audience don't particularly care for what they're doing, the easiest thing to say is, oh, well, I didn't like that. Well, that was a cliche. Uh, whereas someone else uh, more successfully could execute uh, the things that please that particular reader or audience member, and they would say, that's a really great take on this classic idea. Um, and so I guess one of the, the dumb, obvious things to say is that it just depends on how well you execute something. Um, I think it also, though, depends on how long it's been since somebody else did something fresh with that idea, and that sometimes it's easiest if an idea is now a total cliche and you find some way to spin it on its head. It's not necessarily, I don't think, that interesting to just have a story that informs you that a cliche exists by repeating the cliche, but if you can use that as a springboard for something else, that's, I think, the trick of uh, taking all of these ideas and images that our audience has demonstrated again and again that they're actually quite hungry to see reiterated and finding a fun, interesting, engaging way to do that. Okay, do you uh, think that in order to be a success as a uh, as, as a successful play with as opposed to a tired um, uh, reiteration of, do you think that there needs to be a new element added to it? Do you think that we need to nerd trope the nerd trope? Or do you think that you can simply write like a really, really good zombie apocalypse book and everyone says, yep, that's a good zombie apocalypse book? I think that in film it's easier to look at something and say that you can do a romantic comedy, and even if it's the exact same as every other romantic comedy, if it was well cast and well acted and the music was good and everything else sort of clicks along, you can say that did nothing to, it added nothing to the genre, it changed it, not at all, but it was a really good example of it. But I think in narrative, it's harder, uh, fiction, it's harder to make that work. Or do you think I'm off the beam there? I, I think you're right. And I think also different genres demand different degrees of variation. And you pick two genres where very different audiences want to be confronted with the same structure over and over again, and that the challenge there is to deliver the 3% bit of originality on that that makes your uh, romantic comedy structure of, uh, you know, girl meets boy, there's some misunderstanding with boy, some other unsuitable boy comes along, and then the union of the uh, couple occurs at the end uh, to find the the little glimmer of just something extra that makes that very familiar and very satisfying structure pay off. And the same thing is true of the zombie story, where the structures of a typical zombie story are very, very typical. And that just, you know, having a fresh take or a fresh image on it, or, you know, like uh, 28 Days Later, in many ways, is a very typical zombie film, but it felt fresh and original, A, because it had been a little while before since someone had uh, really tackled that genre in a great way, but also just the, you know, the image of him alone on the street at the beginning and the way that it was set up at the beginning, the, the play with images 
and the unusual sort of British setting were enough to set it apart from other things while it delivered that structure. So I guess the question is to ask yourself is how demanding of originality is my particular genre or subgenre and how much do I need to deliver without monkeying with what it is that the audience wants. Now that is a perilous thing to do actually to even stop and think what the audience wants. That really you need to be flipping that around and saying, what do I want to see in a zombie story or a romantic comedy or a Western? What is it that, you know, I had this idea and then I thought, oh wait, you know, this was done pretty recently on an episode of Doctor Who. So I think the thought process from there is to go, okay, well, why did this suddenly appeal to me in those moments before I realized that this was just an idea that's been done 17 different times? Why did this pop into my head? And what is it that made me excited about it before I realized that I would have to work extra hard to make it seem fresh? Yeah, I think that um, one of the things about genre writing is that it does sort of invite the reader to appreciate the tropes as the tropes or the codes as the codes. That, you know, if you are reading um, a Space Navy military novel, there are things that can be relatively unoriginal or relatively straightforwardly adapted from you know, everything back to, you know, C.S. Forrester. But if they are presented, and, and I'm not even going to say interestingly, but I'll say cleanly, then the genre audience wants that in a way that someone who is not the audience for um, uh, interstellar space uh, Navy fiction would say, seriously, how can you read all of those identical novels? And I, that that's one of the really difficult challenges, I think, for a genre creator, is because the genre audience is more forgiving of... Um, let's say, familiarity than the non-genre audience. And the question, I guess, that you're asking is, am I, the writer, more interested in playing within genre or attempting to, you know, run up the sides or cling to the ceiling or maybe even open a, a side door into a new part of it? And if you're just interested in playing within the genre, I think you really have to fall back, and again, this is just my, my guess, either on just sheer, you know, skill with words which if you are that good, you probably don't need to, you know, listen to a hut about it. But the other possibility is to present characters that are interesting in and of themselves that you might find those characters compelling uh, enough to follow them through one after another space battle. Right, and I think that's the saving grace that you can always fall back on, is that if you are strong at characterization, and no matter what you're working on, you should strive to be, that if the people who are interacting with these familiar genre images or structures are new to the reader and are compelling to the reader, that's going to get you almost all the way over the finish line so that you're not necessarily trying to think of a new way to tell a zombie story or a Space Navy story. You're trying to find a new character who belongs in a zombie or Space Navy story and interacts with it in an interesting way. And that if you create a compelling character, the audience, which has a vast store of zombie or Space Navy stories in their uh, memory and are looking for you to interact in an interesting way and recognize that tradition, that you can then answer that question simply be saying, well, my story about this is interesting because it has Janie Smith in it. And Janie Smith has been through these, this set of experiences and we've never seen a Janie Smith in this kind of story before. What happens when Janie Smith meets zombies or 
space aliens or whatever it is. Yeah, right. And it may just be a, a positional thing, like you're saying, we've never seen a single mom who is also the captain of a spaceship in a Space Navy story. Or it may be a thing where I really enjoy reading this character. I think that this character is really interesting. I would, you know, what I would read a novel about them eating lunch in the Gene Siskel formulation. And so having them in a zombie adventure is also going to be interesting just because the character's internal voice is interesting. That's one of the great things that Stephen King, I guess, has mastered is that his characters are fun to spend time with. Even if they're just noodling around drinking American beer and thinking about Bruce Springsteen, they're still doing it in an interesting way that not every single Stephen King character, much less every other character, has done. That those characters are sort of lived with like a familiar room is lived with. And I think uh, audiences who really love particular genres are happy to see those images and structures repeated. In fact, they demand it. That's why they're there. That's Mm -hmm. why they pick this thing up instead of uh, some other thing. But they want you to demonstrate that you are aware of the fact that you're working within a tradition rather than uh, going back and just repeating whatever the first original vampire story was or the the first mummy story, whatever, that you know that there have been a whole bunch of stories like this and that you are are, uh, then sharing that baseline with the audience and then moving from there in whatever direction you're going. Let me, let me ask you a question, Robin. Um, and I've noticed this with steampunk books, a lot of them, that they have a main character who is so obviously someone the writer wanted to be Sherlock Holmes, but for whatever reason didn't make them Sherlock Holmes, that it tends to get up my nose even more that if they just put Sherlock Holmes in, it would still probably not be a very good book but at least I wouldn't be fighting with the writer over whether or not their character is Sherlock Holmes. Do you think that it's a good idea if you're writing a character who is uh, a, a trope-type character that you might, assuming that they're in public domain, obviously, like Sherlock Holmes is, that uh, they should just go ahead and make it Sherlock Holmes? Or do you think that there's a value in Solar Ponds or every other ascetic, hawk-featured, gray-eyed, strong, private detective with weird, eccentric habits and a straight man? I think if you find yourself pastiching an existing character so much that it's basically that character with the serial numbers filed off and you're not basically just doing it as a send-up, which in and of itself has limited appeal, you should ask yourself, why is that interesting? Uh, Are you doing anything more than just kind of writing fan fiction? And the, the question then is, how do I take the thing that interests me about Sherlock Holmes or Conan and extract just that little bit and put it into a new character that's going to feel real and fresh and exciting. So, for example, House uh, on the uh, show House MD with Hugh Laurie was a modeled on Sherlock Holmes, but they pulled him out of that enough that he became his own guy. And uh, although that show spent a long time not being any good, Hugh Laurie <laughs> and that character exerted enough pull to keep a lot of people uh, watching it, despite uh, the nonsensical nature of a lot of the scripts as the show went along. And so the question is, I, I would urge people is not, how do I make you know my version of this guy, but how do you make that guy your own? How do you add something to that character that makes him different and then takes on a life of his own rather than just being sort of thinly disguised? fan fiction. And so adding something new to the a classic character is just the same, I would think, as adding 
a new character to a classic structure. There's where you get your uh, tension between tradition and freshness. And I think we're kind of about to move into a new topic, which is how uh, genre writing today is increasingly about nerd troping and uh, kind of wish fulfillment, which suggests that uh, according to the rules here at Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, that it's time to foreshadow that and move on. And we creak our way up a set of creaky stairs past a spider web in the shape of a pentagram to a glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky, informing us that we are once again entering the somewhat dusty parlor of the consulting occultist. And uh, this week, speaking of picking up uh, dropped threads, I think we foreshadowed this about a year ago on a Ken's bookshelf. Uh, you found uh, an exciting uh, book, uh, redolent of uh, possible craziness. All about the Jin menace. So, Ken, uh, presumably you've had enough time to uh, check this out further and uh, elucidate exactly who the Jin are and why we should be terrified of them. Okay, uh, just to begin with, the Jin are a uh, sort of spiritual entity, and whether they're demonic or angelic is sort of left up in the air. I think the traditional answer in Islamic lore is that they are sort of between and partaking of both, but are a separate thing of their own. They are uh, sort of a, a separate race besides angels and men, and uh, the daemon, demons would then be fallen angels. So the the jinn are are literally, you know, you could you could say they're the first fantasy race that really really took off and had legs, unless you count the centaurs. But anyway, the jinn are beings of smokeless fire is the traditional way to to phrase them. They sort of live in their own sort of countryside. Uh, which is uh, traditionally centered on the city of brass. Uh, you can sort of get the notion that if you spend a lot of your time walking across deserts in Arabia and seeing a lot of heat distortion, uh, you start uh, imagining that that heat distortion is deliberately trying to kill you. And I think that that's probably where uh, the jinn comes from. It comes uh, from the... Uh, uh, literally, it's from an Arabic word meaning hidden. Um, but uh, other things from that uh, that same root are... Uh, insanity, uh, which is to say someone whose intellect is hidden, but I also suspect there's an element of um, uh, this bit where the, the jinn are sort of a pressure or a constant force uh, pushing on you uh, invisibly, and I think that that's the thing that really gets people excited about the jinn. There's a book that I also have on my on my shelf, The World of the Jinn and the Devils, which is by Dr. Umar Suleiman al-Ashkar. He is a professor of the College of Sharia at the University of Jordan. So obviously he is your man on the jinn. And this book does not uh, debase itself with a bunch of nonsense about UFOs. This book is just, what do you, as a believing uh, Muslim, think about the jinn and what are the relevant hadiths? And um, uh, how can you protect yourself from the uh, very real possibility that the jinn are going to come mess with you? And I think that if you're looking for a sort of a straight believer's viewpoint of the jinn, there are obviously plenty of of websites out there that have um, uh, uh, Muslim imams giving you various teachings of various sorts, but I, re I can recommend The World of the Jinn and the Devils as a pretty good uh, baseline. Uh, Philip Imbrogno and Rosemary Ellen Guiley's The Vengeful Jinn, on the other hand, is uh, crazy sauce, but it is sadly less ambitious crazy sauce than I was hoping. It basically goes through a lot of other 
things like poltergeists and UFOs and the Mothman and uh, Shadow People and all kinds of other good stuff. And it says, are these things, do these things exhibit the traits of the djinn? Are they mocking? Are they uh, hidden or invisible? Do they change their shape? Um, Is there a connection to a a basically... um, a agenda that is orthogonal to ours. It's not a sense that, like, demons, they're not trying to tempt you into something, but they have their own desire, and if you are in the way, that's just too bad. Which I think is an interesting way to organize the case literature, but sadly, there's very little that's specifically about the jinn qua the jinn, with one exception, which happens uh, relatively early in the book. And this, I think, is, is for me, the, my favorite bit of the book. I mean, certainly if you are sort of just generally interested in making the jinn the big bads in your in your game... This will be a you know an excellent way to, uh, to to get them tied into whatever else you've got an actual source book about. But there's a, a story that I suppose Imbrogno tells that he's off in Saudi Arabia in the 90s when he's in the military um, or knows people in the military and is talking to a high level courtier at um, uh, one of the Saudi princes, uh, Prince Khalid bin Fad. One of the, one of his cousins told him that the Saudi government and the U.S. government cooperate. Uh, or rather the Saudi government cooperates with the U.S. government in its attempt to capture a jinn and and figure out its secret interdimensional moving powers so that it can be used for um, uh, America and for its uh, for our secret uh, uh, special forces programs. Oh yeah, there we here we go. Here's here's the sweet stuff. That's that that's the thing, right? That the the notion is. Um, uh, that uh, the governments of the Middle East, in addition to their other uh, cooperations with the United States, are also helping us um, uh, capture jinn by sort of, you know, and, and once you've said it, you can just sort of see what's going on, and it's that whole Tim Powers declare uh, thing coming back, only now it's special forces going out into, you know, the Ruba al-Khali being led by Bedouin tribesmen whose grandfather knew that there was a jinn there, and they've got some kind of crazy um, uh, van with aerials and all kinds of other stuff that they put up. And the notion that there is a U.S. government uh, force involved in not even a secret war, but like a secret big game hunt for Jin, I think is really exciting. There's another thing that I ran across online that is a U.S. government think tank, allegedly, called the Collins Elite. And this think tank examines unknown phenomena from a demonic perspective. And so their view is, if demons are real, we should have a government plan to deal with them. And so... They are like, uh, no, the Roswell crash isn't a real Roswell crash. It's an illusion caused by Satan to mess with us. And the notion of these guys maybe being rivals to, partners with, the employers of the secret U.S. military task force that's out there in the deserts of Araby or, or Ghulistan in southern Afghanistan going after the jinn. And uh, the ghouls, by the way, are a subspecies of jinn in the original version of this, so we have a lovely Lovecraftian connection, even if we didn't have one with invisible beings with their own creepy agenda. Uh, right, The uh, because we can, uh, if we want to bring HPL into this, we can uh, make them star vampires, uh, which you uh, pointed out online recently are uh, sort of the James Dean of the mythos. They uh, have only made a few appearances, but uh, had a great impact for that. Um, another thing we can then do with this uh, is posit that the army and thus the national security establishment has actually secured the cooperation of a number of jeans. Uh, and how in, how in myth would one uh, go about doing that? Uh, in myth, you use the seal of Solomon is the way that you get the jinn to obey you. Uh, Solomon, of course, Solomon bin Daud, the, the Suleiman bin Daud, the great um, uh, 
uh, king of uh, the of the world under uh, God Himself, uh, was given authority over the over the jinn and given a ring, and in it was a seal that could control the jinn and make them do things. And that's how he built the temple of uh, of Jerusalem. Was he had the jinn do it as opposed to hiring Phoenicians to do it at time and a half, which is how he actually did it. Right. So that gives you your irresistible MacGuffin scenario at the beginning, where you mm-hmm. have to uh, find the seal of uh, Suleiman and uh, wrest it away from its current uh, owners, and you can explain uh, any number of possible different Middle East conflicts as being a, a cover for that. And then you can flash forward in time to uh, the uh, security establishment having used that to secure the cooperation of various gene, and uh, perhaps that would then explain uh, why uh, all of this mass surveillance is going on and all of this uh, apparently unnecessary information is being gathered because uh, the gene, of course, have a great hunger for the information about people's uh, whereabouts and actions and secret desires, and that it's them who uh, want all of this seemingly innocuous info on ordinary people's regular lives, uh, and they're taking that and then they're exchanging it for locations uh, that the uh, uh, drones can be targeted at, so that uh, you can then do a sort of a Corée-style moral corruption within the system with a supernatural twist where you uh, are perhaps one of these people who uh, first got the seal of Solomon are now uh, beginning to feel distinctly queasy about the way uh, everything is going and how the uh, genes seem to be uh, gathering more and more power behind the scenes. Yeah, there's a, um, uh, I mentioned it before, but if you plan to do a, a gene and spycraft game, then you definitely need to read Declare, the novel by Tim Powers, which is the occult tradecraft novel uh, to beat all occult tradecraft novels. And it specifically centers on the role that the gene played in uh, guarding Russia, both Tsarist and Soviet versions, and a uh, multi-decadal MI6 plan to kill the gene that is the secret guardian of Moscow. And there's a lot of very interesting stuff going on with that. Uh, Powers obviously is terrific and will be a great lead into that. Uh, Imbrogno has a chapter entitled, or a, sub- a subsection entitled, Did H.P. Lovecraft Know of the Gene? But in the tradition of this book, that is a headline. Uh, it's all hat and no cattle. It is a headline without a backup. It basically says, well, he could have uh, thought of all kinds of things. And it does mention that there is an aquatic gene called Abizathu who sounds sort of like Cthulhu if you ignore everything except for Thu. <laughs> <laughs> and who lives in the Red Sea, which is handy. Um, so there's a lot of um, uh, possibilities if you want to use, uh, instead of the Seal of Solomon, it's like, well, we can't get to the Seal of Solomon. The, it's, it's, that's why we have the NSA there cracking the numbers to sort of figure out the source code of the universe. But until then, we have the Necronomicon, and that, that gives us enough sort of temporary power to, to keep the gene bottled up until we can... Uh, until we can do it the way that God told Suleiman to do it. Yeah, there won't be any blowback from that. No, that's, that's, there's, there's never been a problem with that. And that, I think, can be the notion. Because the, the problem with a, a Seal of Solomon going wrong is that it sort of violates the principle of the, of the universe. Unless you want to begin by saying that you know God was also messing with Solomon. Or that um, our seal is an imperfect copy of of Solomon's seal, which is another possibility. Well, you could say not that the seal has gone wrong, but uh, corrupt people are using their uh, free will to do bad things with it. And uh, certainly there's lots of examples of uh, people being allowed to do bad things with their free will that still fits mm-hmm. that uh, uh, whole metaphysic. 
I guess uh, one of the problems here is that we're seeing uh, gene lore mostly filtered through Fordian events that have a Western connection. And it would be interesting to know whether there's this sort of undercurrent of uh, sort of uh, Fordian uh, gene or demon elements in the Muslim world that we have the undercurrent of demonic possession as a uh, sort of an leptonic theme uh, in the Western world. But that's a, uh, a matter, I guess, first of all, of uh, access and the uh, also uh, it's a lot safer here in the Western world to um, mess around with metaphysics than it is uh, in the Muslim world. Well, there are um, there are certainly current uh, uh, beliefs in the Muslim world that there are active jinn doing active jinn things. I mean, like I say, this book, which was written by a professor at the University of Jordan, so he's got official um, uh, imprimatur for his jinn discussions. He talks about how to protect yourselves from jinn in the real world. He talks about real cases of, of jinn haunting that sort of read in the same sort of way as um, in a, in our world we would say that's that's a poltergeist or that's or you've got a, a haunted house uh, a presence of some kind coming after you that that seem to read in that same way. There are cases uh, of um, especially militias in the in the wars in Central Africa where there are a lot of uh, Muslim fighter groups and a lot of uh, sort of heterodox Muslim cults that they believe that there are jinn either that have been harnessed by one or another side or that are protecting the mosque. And so if you don't have uh, magic baptismal water, you can't go after the mosque because the jinn will get you. Uh, th that sort of belief does occur on the ground. I think that we don't, that, that our versions of those stories tend to filter it through an individual response to this threat. And I suspect that a more traditional society filters it more through a group response to a threat. And of course, a group response to a threat is traditionally found in the form of a witch hunt. So I assume that there are, um, uh, there are cases in which the way to solve the problem of the jinn is to take the guy who's being, you know, uh, haunted by the jinn and chase him out of town. Right. Cause you've got in, in most, uh, traditional cultures, there's the distinction between, uh, religious power and sorcery and sorcery is mm -hmm. supernatural power marshaled by an individual for selfish means. And you, uh, can't knock out the bad spirit or the jinn or the wendigo or whatever it is, but you can knock out the guy who is channeling that. It seems also that the idea of the jinn being associated with the with the heat mirage indicates that the, as we see in in most cultures of people who live in relatively hostile environments or rather live on the fringe of hostile environments, that they are the personification of environmental danger, and uh, any. Uh, you know, you name your extreme climactic condition, and if there's a culture living there, that culture has anthropomorphized the danger that that represents. And if the danger is one to your senses, where you start to uh, go crazy and lose it and lose volition as you become dehydrated in the desert, or as you uh, freeze and slowly cake over with ice in the Arctic, that it's all the same impulse being described uh, in different ways according to the cultures who live there and the different environments that they correspond to. Yeah, the the other couple of things that might uh, tie in in this context, first of all, uh, just like in uh, Christian demon stories, there's a rite of exorcism that you can say. It's the throne verse of the Quran, um, or you can write recite the final three surahs of the Quran, um, uh, and those will 
drive the, the djinn away from you, just like reciting, I think it's the 104th Psalm, is the one that, you know, takes demons out of the picture, or the Roman Rite of Exorcism, if you're a Catholic uh, priest, uh, that is helpful. But there's um, there's sort of the, this atropotaic uh, quality of scripture that helps you keep the djinn at bay, and that is, you know, sort of, every man has that in their arsenal, but for supernatural fiction, you kind of want to undermine that, because if it's just as simple as reciting the 104th Psalm, no one would ever have a problem with it with demons, and obviously we know from supernatural fiction that plenty of people have a problem with demons. But I, I do want to emphasize that that is part of the tradition, that there, you, um, uh, as, a, as a Muslim, you have a relationship with Allah that is more powerful than anything a, a jinn can do for you, and if you just lean back on that, then Allah will take care of you, and that is uh, pretty much the deal that you make. Another thing about the jinn, though, is that they are used, I think, and this is me speculating, but they are used a little bit as a hammer to beat another heterodox Muslim sect called the Uwaisi, who are called the Invisible Ones, and they're sort of a sub-branch of Sufism. They were big in Central Asia for a while. For a while, they were in the Sudan. Um, and they believe that there is a special route to uh, paradise that Allah gave to their uh, prophet, Uwais. Um, and there's a, there's a hadith that says, uh, while Muhammad is talking about the Quran, and someone says, do we have to know this whole Quran? And he says, well, unless you're this one guy in Yemen, yes, you do. Uh, <laughs> And he says, there, there's, a, there's a green, uh, it's something like an arrow is shot out of Yemen can hit paradise, but nothing you can do is going to do it type story. So it's sort of like a camel through the eye of the needle. Um, but the, 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 this sect believed that there was this uh, uh, teacher named Uwais who either telepathically communicated with Muhammad or was similarly inspired at the same time by Gabriel, but he has his own route to paradise. And if you're an Uwaisi, then... Uh, a, because you're denying the primacy of Muhammad, you have to work underground anyway. But also, because the Uysis and the Sufis have a lot of crossover, I think it can be a, a method for Orthodox Islam to sort of push back against Sufism and push back against other heterodox sects and say, well, these guys are invisibles, and the jinn are invisibles, and I think we all know where this is going. And so when you say you have to be on the watch out for jinn, that's sort of a social code for you have to be on the watch out for uh, Sufis who are going to ask a lot of annoying questions and, and pester the imam while he's uh, trying to, to keep the city clean and keep everyone behaved well. To cycle back to uh, our premise of the NSAsian and the problem that if you're a believing Muslim, you need merely uh, recite a verse that you've conveniently memorized to avoid jinn trouble. Of course, as a non-Muslim, you are not going to have that power over jinn so that if you right, yeah. assure that you are player characters that none of them fit the bill that uh, then gives you uh, plenty of ability to exercise leverage over them and you may end up with a campaign where everybody has to uh, convert by the end in order to uh, save the day. Yeah, there's a there, there's an interesting argument over on the sort of uh, evangelical side of the conspiracy community about whether or not jinn are real because they may not appear in the Bible. And so um, a lot of people are sort of trying to, you know, uh, split the difference and say, well, the seraphim that appear to Isaiah are the burning ones, and jinn are smokeless fire, so maybe the jinn are seraphim. Or they say that um, uh, the jinn are the familiar spirits, the jobim, that are mentioned in various parts of uh, Le Leviticus or wherever. Right, not to be mistaken for Antonio Carlos Jobim. No, no, he is he is not a jinn that we know of. Although he is 
um, uh, Trixie and will get inside your head. Well, I think we've uh, well explored the uh, Jin menace and have uh, explained to everyone how uh, the NSA is watching them for the Jin and, and uh, with the unless, Jin, with their crystal and walls. with the Jin. Uh, and uh, unless you are, are in good standing and know the right uh, uh, verse to say, uh, they're probably looking at your browser history right now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Phoenix. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Wish for the show to continue by clicking the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Exploit our reach by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.